Hello, friends. My name is Aliza Kelly. I'm a celebrity astrologer, three-time author, and host of this podcast, Stars Like Us. Think of Stars Like Us as your favorite nighttime talk show that just so happens to be released every Monday morning. Each week, we connect with another amazing expert guest, and together we talk about everything under the sun. But before we get into today's episode, take a moment to rate this podcast five stars. Why? Because you're the fucking best. All right, now let's do it. Sit back, relax, and get ready for another out-of-this-world conversation. This is Stars Like Us. everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Aliza Kelly, and I am so delighted to introduce all of you to Henry Seltzer, a Sagittarius sun, Leo moon, Libra rising. If you don't know Henry by name, you will absolutely know Henry through his work because Henry started Time Passages, the astrology software that you know I talk about all the time. I will not get off of my high horse about But to give you even more context, Henry Seltzer, transformational astrologer and creator of the Time Passages astrology software, is based in Santa Cruz, California. An extended look at this month's star signs and a variety of astrology reports are always available on his website. He writes about Eris, the planet beyond Pluto only recently discovered in 2006, entitled The Tenth Planet, Revelations from the Astrological Eris. And it is available on Amazon or from your local bookseller through New Leaf Distributing. His second book about the planets is entitled The Ephemeris of Transneptunian KBO Planets. Henry holds MS degrees in linguistics from NYU and UCSD and offers enchanting private astrological counseling. I believe that. I Yes, I also want to talk about the TNOs. The heiresses, I want to talk about all of the outer stuff because we they do not get enough airtime on the show. Henry, it is such a joy to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I think let's start off with a very important question that I know everyone who's listening who knows how obsessive I am about telling people to download time passages is what is the origin story of time passages? How did that come to be? Well, it is, it is kind of interesting. Um, believe it or not, it was a social activist project. Like many people in the 60s, I uh, was convinced that there's problems, you know, that the society was a little bit on the wrong course. The obvious things, I don't have to go into details, I don't think. Just that there were so many things. And of course, everybody was marching and activist and trying to prevent the war in 2003, the invasion of Iraq, and so on. That was long after I started Time Passages, but you, just that kind of activity. And what finally convinced me what needed to happen was I felt like there needed to be an evolution on the part of everybody. You know, I just really felt like uh, it won't happen, things won't change, CEOs, etc., whoever it might be, would always be able to get around whatever the laws were, the rules were, unless people had a better sense of themselves, a better sense of what matters, you know, a better sense of a spiritual sense. And I felt like, you know, it's great, the fundamentalist religions, I'm not knocking that at all, but I felt like they were a little out of date in this uh, emerging, that was toward the end of the 20th century. I felt like astrology was a really important building block because it's demonstrable. You can see what's happening right in front of you, that there's a, you know, the only explanation is that there's some kind of a spiritual connection that we have, uh, you know, synchronicities. We, we just feel the meaning. It's like the universe talking back to us. As Rick Tarnas was so, so able to articulate in his amazing book, Cosmos and Psyche. I know you've interviewed Rick Tarnas, and he, I think he's just really an important um, contributor to this idea that it be, need, astrology needs to become a more general factor in the society if we could get to that point, general acceptance of astrology, I felt that would be half the battle towards this emerging 
culture that we need we needed to make the transition so <laughs> i'm being a little long-winded about it uh, but I'm, what i'm trying to say is i i decided that being able to demonstrate that astrology works was so important and that's why i developed time passages to be able to say hey take a look just open the software uh, now now the app of course look in your in your chart and and see what you can see and by gosh it works <laughs> yeah so that was where i was coming from but what an incredible feat that must have been. I mean, I can't oh. imagine what just like logistically and in terms of programming it and creating all of the content and all of the interpretations, because even though as a professional astrologer myself, I don't rely on the interpretations, there are interpretations for every single house combination and transit, and you have daily horoscopes in there. I mean, it is an extremely robust library of information. And can you tell us about like what the process was in pulling all of that together and even just on the back end of like what it took to program? Well, it took 10 years. <laughs> I started the project in 1985 with a couple of friends uh, that were co-workers. I was in the Silicon Valley. I was working as a, as a programmer, so I had that skill. And uh, I just decided Again, another reason I did it, I just decided I wanted to do something meaningful with uh, the computer skills I had rather than just kind of keep the wheels of commerce rolling along, you know. Yeah, so I did it in my spare time. <laughs> I was working at the time, you know, still working. And my kids were, you know, wondering when, when the heck that would ever come about. You know, it would be like, oh, dad's going to release his astrology software program this summer. <laughs> and uh yeah eventually um it did come about and I, I i was completely hooked by the experience because now i was selling my own work that i developed over time that had a purpose i felt it had a more important purpose than just uh, trying to make a buck i gave up the idea of making any money i never thought i'd make money at it i just said well this is more important and uh yeah i developed it over a long time i had really good resources in terms of my library. I've, I've been an avid, uh, like like all of us, right? I'm sure like yourself. Uh, when I, Once I got into astrology, I was like so hooked and it was so amazing. And more and more and more, I read Dane Rujar, I read Mark Edmund Jones, I read Stephen, For uh, well, Stephen Forrest too, but Stephen Arroyo was amazing in those, in those days. And, you know, I, I synthesized what I could find from the best that I could come up with as far as the interpretations. You know, I just... I had studied a lot and, you know, I've been doing charts for a long time, too, uh, with people. But, um, you know, it was a, lot, a lot of it was my uh, book learning. So I was a sort of self-taught. Wow. So you wrote the content that's in Time Passages. Yeah, I wrote those contents, yes. Wow. That's what took, that's what took 10 years. <laughs> so not the programming as much. Well, the programming, too. You know, I even programmed. <laughs> You're like, no, that took 10 years also. <laughs> well, you know, I mean... That's been a long cycle of continuous development since then, too. But, um, you know, I actually calculated the planet's positions by hand per, from scratch until I found this was ephemeris, which, of course, did it for you. And that was an amazing breakthrough for me. But anyway, so that was that was the story. Of yeah. Before we started recording, I was mentioning how really, you know, being able to pull up a chart so fast is something that we us astrologers or astrology curious listeners really take for granted because prior to this software being available on personal computers, in order to calculate a birth chart, you had to work with the ephemeris and you had to do it by hand yes. and you had to have that skill. That's the way I started. I think in 75, I was, I was doing my first charts, something like that. And then the microcomputer revolution came along in the early 80s. So, but by the time I was working with micros, microcomputers, um, and I realized the potential there, the, and of course there was some software already, astrology software was starting to appear, but I just, I felt like I could do one with a better, the user interface for most of those was complex and I felt like it needed to be very simple, mm -hmm. you know, just keep it simple so everybody could use it. Everybody could just figure out how to do a chart, put your data in, see the chart, see the evidence in front of you that astrology works and also a great introduction to this fabulous field. Well, that is that is one of the reasons that I am such a a staunch advocate for your software is because it is so legible. It is so mm. clear, 
I am obsessed with the fact that you have the, the bands in the elemental color around the wheel. It makes learning so easy because once uh-huh. you get down that you, that each Zodiac sign has 30 degrees from zero to 29, then you can start to see where a, a transit or where a certain area or where a point we are actually at the time of this recording, we're recording this on the Jupiter Neptune conjunction. I'm a Pisces moon, you're a Sagittarius sun. So we both have skin in the game here. We both, we both care about the Jupiter Neptune conjunction because it is doing important things in our charts respectively. Yes. Uh, and cause we're both astrologers and you know, it's a big deal, but you know, even being able to say to people, okay, locate where 23 degrees and 59 minutes of Pisces is, and you can eyeball it because you know that that band goes from zero to 29 is an incredible resource. And it's really helped so much in being able to disseminate this wisdom, which obviously, you know, we, because astrology has been able to become so much more accessible and it has sort of just lent itself to the internet so beautifully. I think that this huge astrology revival is a byproduct of a lot of the work that you were doing in the 80s in creating this. Well, and, and I think we, we don't want to, yes, of course, the computer's been so helpful. Absolutely, 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. And by the way, thanks for mentioning, you know, I, I, I'm really happy to see you reflecting what I was intending, which is to make it easy to work with, to make it clear where the where the signs were behind the houses is what you're talking about that circle with the elemental colors but i, I want to mention also that i believe that astrology is really this resurgence you know it was universal at one time in the middle ages but i think that the uh re, the, the surge in interest in astrology is just kind of natural development you know you could almost say it comes out of the 60s with the the understanding that there's more to our existence than we were previously willing to admit, you know, possibly also with the psychedelics that came through, um, you know, just that understanding that we live in a very magical universe, that everything is connected as, as physics is even showing us in modern times, you know, modern physics developed in the 20th century, early 20th centuries, showing the same thing that there's so many layers of meaning and under, the, the way everything is interconnected, you know, Fritjof Capra wrote the Tao of Physics, uh, really showing the connection between what they were saying in terms of physics and the Eastern religions more, you know, that, that had those kind of concepts, which were also coming in in the 60s. I think it's also, it's just a part of the evolution of our culture. Yeah. Earlier this afternoon, I was a guest on someone else's podcast, and I was speaking to how radical the psychological movement of the early 20th century transformed our understanding of astrology. Because now we have a telescope and a microscope, inward, outward, as above, so below, reflected really in our ability to look at ourselves and understand that we have an entire internal world and an entire internal experience that is separate from our external one. And the relationship between those as monumental in our understanding of how we can metabolize and work with these planets and these archetypes on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. It's such a great guiding principle, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really extraordinary, which is why I am someone who is very intrigued by the celestial bodies that were discovered in the 20th and 21st century. Is because, of course. Yeah, I find them to be, you know, I see the pattern and the significance of, for instance, Pluto, right? Like Pluto discovered in 1930, was discovered in, and, and then assigned the archetypes, assigned the sort of associations because it was so what the zeitgeist needed at that time. Mm, yes. And if we, as we continue to discover celestial bodies, I would imagine that they are also archetypes or storylines or narratives or characters that our society needs. And to deny our society's ability to bring those into the folds, you know, to only look at the traditional planets or only apply Hellenistic principles to me, you know, as this astrologer feels like it's, it's a miss, it's a missed opportunity to continue to expand. Yes. Thank you. Well, you know, I've done a lot of research on Eris, particularly, um, 
kind of nailed the archetype there. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, the position of of Neptune right now is almost 24 degrees to Pisces, pretty close, you know, within a minute or two. Well, Eris in the sky right now is 24 degrees of Aries. So it really does enhance this whole, we're we're in a very spiritual moment in, in time, and I think I think we're all feeling it. I don't know about you, but I'm. I woke up this morning, kind of feeling, just very connected to the idea that there's a spiritual component to everything that we do. That there, there's more to life than than just uh, what we can see and feel and touch. You know. Yeah. We have, we have to touch it with our other senses to definitely to get beyond that, and it's just there, right? And we we we, we know that. Anyway, I did get fascinated with Eris. Uh, here it was, uh, just as important as Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, so therefore arguably an important factor in charts, and has been shown to be just as important as Pluto in charts. I know that's a bold statement. Many astrologers would agree with me now, uh, a few here and there, is gathering momentum. You know, it's going to be a while before it's completely accepted. But that that is the case, just as I was able to show by doing all the research for the charts. So that was another phase in my uh life path, you know, first to be a kind of a purveyor of what was commonly known about astro- astrological wisdom in the in the 20th century, to be able to present that as you were describing, as I was describing. And then uh, to take a step beyond that and say, well, what about this new discovered body named in 2006 as, uh, as a planet, uh, just as much a planet as Pluto? And, you know, you mentioned as above, so below. What I found, and I, I love this, is that uh, we can add to that and say, as furthest out in the in these uh, outer space dimensions, beyond and going further and further from the sun, it's furthest out, so deepest within. Mm. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Thank you. That's where, so Pluto touches the soul, and uh, that's what has been, you know, articulated all through this understanding that's grown through the 20th century of what Pluto really means to us. And Eris similarly goes to depth. So I I call it a feminine warrior because it was the sister of the god of war in the Greek mythology, a feminine warrior for still intention. So it really connects us to what our life purpose is. And if you find that when you look in a chart and you see a connection in a natal chart between Eris and any other planet, let's say Mercury, it really brings that planet through as an important soul component for purpose of, of intention in this lifetime. You know, with Mercury, they're a writer. You might very well have that yourself. I, I, I forget. I've seen your chart, actually. I don't know if you give out your birth data, but I, I, saw, I saw your birth Oh, yeah. I, I'm, you don't mind. I'm, I'm sloppy with it. I don't mind. <laughs> I hope that wasn't out of line to say that. But so I, I, did, I forgot to look. I could have looked at that this morning. But do you remember where, where your Mercury lies? Because I bet you have it with Mercury. It seems like you would. You're so articulate and, you know, you're doing this work that you're doing. Well, I have a, I have a domicile and exalted Mercury in Virgo. Mm. So my Mercury is already does a lot of work in the eighth house where all of my other planets are. You know, why don't we uh, pull it up and see? Okay. Let's, let's see where, and I use your software anyway. So okay. help me locate where I can find, uh, how do I turn on Eris in uh, time passages since I don't work with it. In the display, you can see display chart points and you choose the Eris and TNOs. There it is. So what's your, what's your degree of your Eris and Aries? Must be around 12, I guess. It's 17. Oh, 17. Okay. 17 Aries. How wide of an orb do you give Eris? As anything. <laughs> Whatever you want. No, no, no. Seriously, it's, it, uh, the other planets have the, their connections to Eris. So even though Eris is quite slow, you can, you can use uh, normal orbs with with Eris and natal chart. Well, I have what well, my rising is 12 degrees of Capricorn, and I have Chiron at 13 degrees of Cancer. So we have that's a connection. Some squares, yeah, happening there. How about your Mercury? My Mercury is 21 Virgo. Okay, so there's a little bit of a connection there, four, four degrees off of an inconjunct. Yeah. yeah, it's an inconjunct. You can also look at the parallels, by the way. Do you know you can right click on this on the planet to see the parallels? Really? Yes, if you control click. No, I didn't know that. That is so cool. I had no idea. It helps because, you know, sometimes there's a parallel. You might have a parallel between Mercury and Eris. Oh, my goodness. That is such a cool trick. Listeners, if you have time passages 
on your desktop, which you should. And if you're in the Constellation Club, we have a special discount code for you. If you right click, you can see the parallels and you can see there's a whole other universe that opens up in the right click. It tells you it's next retrograde station. It tells you when it's going direct. Oh my goodness, that blew my mind. Wow. <laughs> it's so handy in a bi-wheel too, because if you're looking at a bi-wheel and you right click on a transiting planet, it'll tell you, hey, that planet is about to station and turn around before it even gets to the end of the house. Or, you know, it might, oh it might be. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so this... it's very handy with a transiting planet. <laughs> yes. And what I used to do, um, and I can imagine how handy it is in progress charts as well. Yep. Is, can you use this in a progress chart too? I'm trying to think. I know you can do it in transits. You can certainly show the parallels in the progress charts, yes. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. So let's back up and talk about Eris, the trans-Neptunian planets, the TNOs, and how they do show up in a chart. Because obviously some listeners will know that the personal planets are going to manifest very differently than the outer planets in that the personal planets are going to be things that are more embodied and the outer planets are going to be more of these long-term thematic narratives. Is that how you would also imagine the Eris and the other TNOs to show up? Well, in a natal chart, you know, if you have uh, an outer planet connection to inner planets in any of them, it's pretty dramatic. If there's Neptune connection to your your planets, for example, you're, you're kind of that spacey kind of Neptunian kind of half here, half not here, right? And so they all have their different characteristics. Pluto can be, as as you know, very compulsive. It can be, you know, that that intention to uh, to go to the depths of everything. You know, they say Pluto with Mercury is the detective. You know, got to figure everything out, know the details of everything. Um, well, Eris, as it turns out, really brings those natal planets. So Eris with Mercury, they're a writer. Eris with Venus, they have that appreciation of the maverick quality. Eris um, with Mars brings out the masculinity. Neil Cassidy is a great example. You know, he was like um, just a, a fountain of life force, you know, and he was always uh, sexually involved with many people at once and multiple orgasms a day when he was in his prime and so on. And you see it, you know, I, I, you can recognize it. I was watching a concert and this guy named uh, Pastorus, who's uh, quite a wonderful jazz musician, the way he kind of was swaggering across the stage told me he had ears with Mars, and sure enough. Um, or, or you see it with people like that are famous uh, Lotharios like Jack Nicholson, you know, who's known for kind of a bit, a bit, a bit of a womanizer. Same, same with uh, also, um, well, just, you know, you, you, you see it with people. I don't know if I left out any of the personal plans. Oh, with the sun, it just brings out, you know, Gloria Steinem has eras conjunct the sun. So it's very much, I couldn't find a feminist leader that didn't have strong eras when I was first starting this research. Mm. I kept expecting to find somebody. There must be one that doesn't have strong eras, but no, they all had strong eras. It really brings out that warrior uh, quality. And also what I realized about the feminine warrior versus a masculine, more traditional warrior concept is that the feminine warrior they're really fighting for deep need. They're fighting for what is their deepest principle that has to come out. And that's why the feminists are also such great examples, because they were trying to rectify a, a wrong that they felt very clearly that they weren't being treated as, as equal to uh, men as far as their ideas and their what, what they could bring. You know, that was a huge, and that, that they could vote, you know, that was such a huge fight at that time. And you do find a very strong eras in, in pretty much all the feminists. I, I document that in the book. It's in one of the appendices in the back, all the feminists that I could find in their eras. So it's really important in charts, actually. And then the for for listeners who also have some familiarity with the asteroids, I guess we should mention that the asteroids are geographically located in a very different area of the sky than these very Kuiper Belt outer planets. True. The asteroids are between Mars and Jupiter primarily, and then planets like Eris and the other trans-Neptunians are where Pluto is in the Kuiper or even beyond that, on the other side of Neptune in the far reaches of, of what we understand to be our solar system. And these new ones are all Kuiper Belt objects, KBOs, so-called. I don't like using the word dwarf because a lot of people confuse that with a lesser. And as we've just been articulating about Eris, it's actually just as important as Pluto. 
and Pluto itself is is very important in charts, we wouldn't want to say don't use Pluto, right? So the idea of a dwarf planet being different, that's the astronomical category, of course, they call them dwarf planets, uh, the ones out in the Kuiper belt. Um, and of course, they had to do that. The, the astronomers, the International Astronomical Union, there were so many out there, they didn't want to say we have Oh, we have 25 planets now. Oh, maybe next year we have 29 planets. You know, they, 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 they had to be a certain number of planets in the solar system for the basic cosmology of our, you know, understanding of who we are, where we are, what kind of universe we live in, as far as this, just the physical characteristics. So they couldn't have that many planets. And they had to say, oh, Pluto's not a planet. Pluto has to be something else, a dwarf planet, they said. But it's still a kind of planet. So to me, those KBOs, uh, I like to call them KBO planets because uh, to me, that's a better, it's a more um, descriptive, kind of more respectful way of including these. And then what got me fascinated as well, and we can go into it to whatever extent you, you want to, is Haumea and Makimaki are the other two that were officially named as KBO planets by the IAU, uh, along with Pluto and Eris. So those four are actually the the ones that are officially named. And I make a distinction there between all these other objects that have been discovered out there and given names in some cases, but they're not officially recognized as planets by the Astronomical Union. So I, I made a distinction there, and I think it's an interesting one. And I've been researching all four, I mean, well, Pluto we know, but you know that the, the three new ones, Eris, Haumea, and Makimaki, have been the object of my research re- recently. How have you been caring for yourself lately? Whether it's by taking longer baths, going on evening strolls, or indulging in midday naps, pair your self-care ritual with Calm and take your wellness to the next level. We're partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. If you go to calm.com slash Aliza, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and new content is added every single week. I love Calm. I love what it represents. I love the storytelling, and I love the emphasis on real mental health. For listeners of this show, Calm is offering an exclusive 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Aliza. Go to calm.com slash Aliza for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash Aliza. So would you mind sharing some of the archetypes on, on those other celestial bodies? And then also maybe we could speak to the fact that these are, we're, we're finally moving out of classical antiquity hmm. mythology with some of these as well, which I think is really notable. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also maybe there's some cognitive dissonance for us around it because we are so comfortable uh, working, or at least maybe I'm speaking with, for myself, I'm so comfortable working with the extension of the uh, Greek mythology that, you know, here, at least for me in the United States, I learned about in my childhood and left such a lasting impression. Um, I've come to understand these gods and goddesses are like family members yes. to me now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so going beyond that and introducing other mythologies and other cultural heritages into our understanding is certainly a departure. Yes. Well, it's very interesting what, you, what you're bringing up. That's exactly right. So we have a transition, which is Eris was from the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. She was a Greek goddess of chaos and discord, the sister of the god of war, followed him willingly into the battle and delighted in the groans of the dying. So uh, kind of a bloodthirsty feminine warrior, intense warrior. And from the classical um, notion of gods and goddesses. But and I, again, I was concentrating on these officially named ones. Haumea and Makimaki, yes, just as you just said, are absolutely outside of that, coming from indigenous societies, being the, uh, Haumea being the creation goddess of Hawaii, Makimaki being the creation god of the Rapa Nui people of Easter Island. And to me, it was quite significant that they were uh, drawn from these other indigenous sources. And when you think of indigenous people, you think of connection to nature. So that was my first take on them, the possibility that both of these, and they have very similar orbits as well, orbital periods in terms of years are quite similar. Um, Haumea is uh, 284 years and Makimaki is 309. So they're, they're not that, they're both longer than Pluto. So they're sort of little Plutos, those two. 
they're a little bit slower than Pluto. So, uh, and and the fact that they were from the indigenous societies made me think of profound connection to nature, and that was my first take. And I've expanded on that to, to include a concept of natural law. I really think with Haumea, and they're always very charismatic to these people with strong Haumea, and they have a profound connection to nature as part of their makeup, one way or another. Uh, many times they will say, oh, yes, I have to be in nature. You know, that's where I can find my, where I can breathe, you know. Uh, and of course, many people feel that to some extent. So that's what I think when you, when you mention also these new archetypes come along when the society is ready and when the society has need of it. And of course, that connection to nature is something that we're realizing now. I think we're beginning to realize now and with the environmental issues as well, that we have to take care of our earth and we have to consider ourselves as part of the earth where, you know, there was that whole period of uh, the enlightenment, which, you know, Robert Hannon calls the darkenment, which was the time when we kind of cut some of those connections, the great chain of being that was where, where people felt like they were connected uh, in, in that time, in that philosophical way. But, you know, what we're beginning to realize is we are, we're not, you know, that was the idea that we're above nature, that we were, that nature was an object that we could utilize, that we were, we were special, we, we were in soul, but not nature. And now we're beginning to realize that we're among the creatures of the earth. We are one creature, one species among the species. You know, the, the, the whales know a lot, you know, they, they have a lot going on and, and uh, all animals, you know, have a soul connection to ourselves to each other you can you can kind of see when you have a pet or something that when you connect to nature it's connecting to creatures or connecting to nature it's just so profound and important and i think it's really beginning it's it was already beginning to sink in you know but i think that these these planets just really articulate that more it's really saying something about who we are what what it is human who who are we and it's saying that these planets coming along at this time is really kind of helping to tell us that we we are fully connected to the natural world we ignore that to our peril um you know we we, we need the natural world it's our it's our uh, home it's our place to live we if we destroy it we don't have a place to live it's it's so obvious and yet so missing from from some of the activities of certain powerful people government or organizations uh, the idea that we have to start protecting the environment, that we have to fight to uh, reduce fossil fuel consumption, leave the fossil fuels in the ground, all those things are just so important right now. And they are, I could go on and on about how they're connected to how man maki maki. Well, immediately what I was thinking as well is just a headline a few days ago, I, I saw, I think it was in the New York Times said that for decades, or it maybe is even over a century, uh, indigenous practices of doing controlled burning were banned on the West Coast in the United States. And now due to <laughs> climate change, but also a climate change being a byproduct of not paying attention, yes, right? Of yes. climate change being the, you know, the beast that has come to be of exploitation and oppression and hyper late stage capitalism and consumerism and like not just simply about where we are today, but as this sort of paradigm, this ideology that did coincide with the Enlightenment and did coincide with the Industrial Revolution. But now the indigenous people in, in on the West Coast are being invited to teach the current politicians and leaders about their ancient practices because they understood the ecology. They understood how to work with the environment in a way that the, you know, this, this very Western patriarchal system of late stage capitalism simply couldn't tolerate, you know, and I always am, I think about how the narrative of, you know, Columbus and the settlers coming from Europe to America and how they saw that these the, the people living here, the indigenous communities were living without landlords. And they were like, oh, how could this possibly be without even realizing like this is life? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is like coexisting. This is how to stay alive is not just about greed and making the most amount of money. But the recognition of that as something that was 
less evolved than the oppressive systems of, you know, poverty and royalty and this ranking, Mm -hmm. you know, I, it's left such an impression on me because it just seems like such an obvious duh, but has been the mainstream and has been sort of accepted for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. I, I love the way you put that, that uh, they have so much to teach us and we're fi- trying to be, we are now beginning to finally figure out that, oh, they, they had a lot going on. The indigenous societies that were very, very advanced in their, in their ecology and their way of being in this world that we live in. And of course, they, they had the idea of seven generations, don't do anything that'll mess it up seven generations and that's what we're ignoring also yeah it it is it is rather frightening to think that these european colonists came and they didn't see what was right in front of them you know the indians offered friendship according to some stories but you know of course that they the colonists thought that they were primitive and they weren't christian after all and they had to be taught jesus which is it's it's so narrow and, and parochial to think that you have the the only handle on connection to God, you know, your culture. Totally. Totally. Which is one of the reasons that I love astrology so much is that it, it, it creates this omniscient universe that, that doesn't abide by the hierarchy terms that is so present in so many, you know, traditional religions Yes, is that astrology can sort of function with a lot of the same spirituality. And you can certainly talk about ethics as it relates to astrology and have very profound philosophical conversations on it, but you don't have clergy and you don't have rabbis and you don't have like figureheads who have been bestowed more divine power. You have a lot of Mm. translators, you know, you have a lot of interpreters Mm. and a lot of people who are facilitating the conversations, but not who are claiming certain privileges based on being preordained with those abilities. Yeah, well, it was a power dynamic, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. As much as state power was a power dynamic, uh, so was the religious power. Right, which the is opposite. why also I think going back to, you know, the accessibility of astrology and through, you know, the software of time passages, I think that it is really, I, I think it's profound in that it does allow anyone who is curious to explore and see it for themselves. It really reduces the gatekeeping, which is essential in allowing different types of conversations to open up so that it doesn't just, it isn't just coming from a few individuals who have access. Yeah, I really do think it's a fundamental building block along with psychedelics maybe for creating a new culture that really has these ethical principles, you know, we saw it in the 60s, they were saying, you know, there's a right way to treat the earth, there's a right way to treat each other. What's wrong with peace, love and harmony, kindness? Can we avoid war? Can we get away from this violence and power over? And be, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you might be amused in the early days, when we were beginning to market time passages, a publicist uh, that I was working with came up with the idea of BYOA, be your own astrologer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I do love that. That's awesome. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, it really can, it empowers people to see for themselves, which is why I always say, you know, get time passages, pull it up, look at it for yourself, see what's going on. Yes, perfect. Learn how to embody these transits and learn what they mean for you and look forward, look backwards, explore, experiment, and create your own lexicon that makes sense based on your unique circumstances. Yes. I'm curious, though, Henry, in the past decade, we have seen so many new astrology apps. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are, you know, you had your, there are these like very iconic, powerful, like, you know, traditional professional uh, softwares, right? We have Solar Fire and we have Astro Gold and we have these like very serious astrologers who created this but then we also have this wave of non-astrologers making astrology apps and software mm. and the you know we have costar and we have the pattern and those have become very popular listeners will know that i do not co-sign any of them but still they are a lot of people's gateway into astrology mm. 
Uh, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on them as someone who has the software that you were developing since the 1980s. Well, yeah, we were early compared to this wave. And I, I did see the wave coming. I didn't, I didn't see the profits. I, I swear to God, uh, my thought was, well, I'm giving up uh, money because I could be, you know, continuing my programming career in the Silicon Valley. And that would be a way to have a good income and I would have retirement and all that. I gave up all that. I didn't have any retirement. I sunk everything into developing the software. And it wasn't because I was seeing the possibility of making money at it, but it was just, be I did see the importance of astrology. I did feel like we were on the right side of history, you know, that astrology was going to become more important. And that, to me, that's the biggest message of what you just articulated about all these other things springing up, of course, because it's become so so important in, in our current society really took took off you know there, there was a while when it didn't seem like it was going anywhere in the in the 70s 80s you couldn't see this future uh, until later but now it's so popular it's wonderful to me it's wonderful all these roads to astrology are wonderful and they could be you know getting your feet wet getting your feet wetter <laughs> you know getting more and more uh, to understand it and of course what we tried to do always is bring the greatest uh, connection to the real truth of it, you know, to try to talk about it in a serious way and not just, uh, it's a great way to figure out how you're going to get your next raise or something like that, but it's more of a serious study and a more serious, uh, about evolution, about personal evolution, which I really feel is where everything is at. You know, Alan Oaken, who just recently passed away at great loss, uh, always said, and I love this, that he always said, why are we here? We're here to grow. We're here to grow in our understanding of ourselves. We're here to, as Jung always talked about, the individuation process, you know, to become more who you are, more authentically who you are. And I really think that's the purpose, the ultimate purpose of the study of astrology, of our all of our life studies, to really find out who we are, to become the best version of ourselves that we can muster. Um, what, what Alan always used to say is uh, this process of self-evolution is the only game in town, or it's the only game that holds any interest for me. And I always loved that. And I think that's, you know, where, where the real purpose of astrology comes in. Yeah. And I, I think that for, I saw there was maybe just six months ago, there was this dreadful article floating around the internet that was like the, you know, study finds that those interested in astrology have narcissistic personality traits mm. which i just found to be like first of all like <laughs> who wrote this like what headline is this like what study was conducted that would it was was going to be analyzed in this way this is ridiculous but then beyond that it's such a silly misunderstanding of the value of self discovering and the value of self realization to think of it as this very egoic practice because the truth is is that self-discovery, self-actualization, and mental health, empathy, compassion, all coexist. And we are singularly responsible for tending to our own self-development, for tending to our own emotional state, for figuring out what we need in order to live a life that is most functional for us. And if everyone was in the practice of looking inward and looking outward in tandem, I think that we would live in a much healthier society. Yeah, I feel like the answer to that guy's writing that article is, you're a narcissist. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was a very, it was a miss. It was a very misinformed miss. And I was certainly not the only person who was disturbed by it. So I'm sure that that writer discovered that astrologers are very ubiquitous on Twitter and <laughs> to be a little bit less reckless next time he decides to name something that. Well, well, it takes one to know one. Yeah, that's exactly. That's true. <laughs> that is true. So as we prepare to wrap up, I would love to ask you the two questions that I ask every guest on the show. The first is how does magic show up in your life? Well, I think we've been talking about it the whole time. Astrology is magic. Beautiful. Question number two is, what do you believe in? Well, of course, I do uh, really feel that there is a universe that protects us, that guides us, that we, what we get messages from the universe. 
in, in terms of what astrology teaches us, you know, in terms of we're really, um, I love what Rick Tarnas says about this, that he says astrology is the universe talking back to us, you know, that we had the mistaken idea that we were the only unsold. I mean, going back in time, uh, the mistaken idea that humanity had that we were the only unsold factors. Uh, everything else was just uh, objects that we could utilize and realizing, no, instead, everything isn't sold. Uh, there was something in, uh, there's a movie called Little Big Man, and it had Native Americans in it. And one of the things was this Native American talking to a settler was, in the olden days was saying, well, you know, we believe everything, rocks, trees, people, have soul. And uh, the you, you settlers, you, you, you Europeans that have come over here seem to think that, that nothing has soul, not rocks, not trees, not people. <laughs> and uh, it's really a profound thing that's coming along, I think, universally. You know, it's these the studies of Makiyamaki and Haumea have actually really increased my appreciation for this because they do have this not only profound connection to nature, but it does come to also a profound connection, a connection to what is kind of holy in ourselves, a connection to natural law. I, I find it all the time. People that really believe in telling the truth, you know, that, that this it's more important to tell the truth than to have this advantage, whatever the advantage might have been, financially or whatever. There, there's conduct, there's rules of conduct that we see being violated uh, most recently in the world headlines. You know, it's just like, no, there's rules of conduct. You don't do that. And uh, people that, that have that, understanding and that do the right thing that are really uh, oriented towards right action, right relationship. I, I tend to call it, uh, or natural law, you could call it, to bring the idea of nature back into it. It's kind of like perennial wisdom that's there. That's just, it's part of our understanding of what we are. What is the proper way to be a human, to be a stand-up human, right? And so I think that what I'm finding over and over again, the people that seem to have those connections, they do oftentimes of the strong presence of Haumea and or Makimaki in there. I'll just mention that when I saw the chart of Greta Thunberg, I, I, Greta Thunberg, I won't go into the chart, but it really shows that presence of, of, she's an environmental activist, and it shows the presence of Makimaki as an activist archetype as well. Haumea has that as well. Can you recall where it is in her chart? Uh, there's a, a yad to Iris from Mars and Makimaki. And that was really confirming for me because I was already thinking that Maki Maki was more the activist. And here she is, perfect activist, perfect feminine warrior speaking truth to power, telling the leaders of the world uh, at the age of 15, telling the leaders of the world that they're screwing up. You know, we need to be, pay more attention to the environment. So that was profound yeah. for me. So that's part of my belief system that really the, the, it's just coming along just perfect, you know, the astrology is leading us in the right direction. Oh, I love that. That's that's so positive. So I have my tarot deck here and the way that my deck works is that it needs a question. It needs ah. a specific question because if it is a general poll, we get a general answer and then it's like, how do we even begin to interpret? There's 78 cards. So what is a specific question that I can pull a card to offer some insight on today? Well, I think the topic that we've been hitting is, is a profound one. Like, where are we going as a culture? How, how, is that, how can we see the culture evolving? Ooh, okay. A casual tarot poll of where is culture going? <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem. Um, so pile one, two, or three? Two. Okay. So maybe let's put a little, a few more constraints on it. Let's maybe say... Should we speak to the on uh, in the aftermath of the Jupiter Neptune conjunction? Um, should we should we look at that since we have this beautiful portal at the time of this? Recording? Yes. What does that tell us about about our evolution? Great. All right. So, what does Jupiter and Neptune tell us about our cultural evolution, and what are the energies that we should be aware of as a, a result of this beautiful, powerful conjunction? Ten of Swords. End of cycle. That's it. End of intellectual cycle. Yes. End of a of an idea, a shift of ideology. Mental uh, aridity will only take you so far. Right. So this is, I mean, the story is over. 
right? This is a this is a hard divide between past, present, and future. And this is really saying that, you know, whatever the existing paradigm was is is no longer functional, is no longer in existence, is no longer going to work. Um, this is also for listeners, this is the Ten of Swords, which is the final card of the of the ten story. Each card um, goes. Each of the minor arcana cards goes up to ten. So when we get to ten, we know that that's the completion. And that's pure rationality, isn't it? Isn't that a great symbol for the fact that we have beyond rationality is where we're where we're at with uh, Neptune? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that this that the the transformation that is going to take place is first is going to have to begin with a change of yes. our perception, which is so Jupiter Neptune, of course. Absolutely. Beautiful. So where can we find you and connect with you and continue to, I mean, I, I know for one that I am, I always watch your, um, oh. your lunar videos that you post in the newsletter. Oh, well, thank you. I'm a big fan. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a thank big you. fan here. So where, where can our listeners also uh, find you and continue to, to study with you? Well, the, the, the website is astrograph.com. Astrograph is the company I founded to continue doing the time passages software. And we're on multiple platforms, as you've been talking about. We're on the mobile platforms, Android and iPhone. We're also on the uh, desktop platforms, Windows and Macintosh. And you can find out all about the software um, at whatever level that you want to connect to it, and including horoscopes for each month uh, for each sign. We do this on sign uh, horoscopes and a lot of content on the site. Uh, we do the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter there. And we do the lunar, um, try to do the new moons and the full moons um, in video as, as much as we can. And that's all on astrograph.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.